Well, good morning again. So good to uh, see you all. Thank you for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. Uh, it's my great joy to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, it's my joy as well. I get to open up God's word with you as we continue uh, this series. And it's not just a continuation of like, well, we did it last week and we're doing it this week, though that is true. It's a continuation of a series that we began three years ago that each January we've returned to this series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. We did the Lord's Prayer earlier. Specifically, we're centered around Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. And there's this prayer where Jesus says, let me teach you how to pray. And then he tells us like what should guide our prayers. Not that you have to pray this exact phrase each and every time, but this should be part of our heartbeat as a people that are seeking to follow Jesus is we want to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Not, not my kingdom, not my will. All right, we want the Lord's will to be done. Your kingdom come. All right, your will be done on earth, all right, because this place and this time matters, but we want it to be not just our best plans and ideas and things that we get inspired about, but we want to see on earth as it is in heaven. The heavenly realm is where everything as God intends it to be. It's beautiful. It's harmonious. It's what the scriptures speak of, the Hebrew scriptures, this shalom, all right? And so that's what we want to see, and we're invited by God to get to participate. We get to play. This is part of our job as the, the church and one of the Hebrew words for this idea, I think that's embodied in Matthew 6, verse 10, was this word that shows up some 200 times. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you would see this word. It gets translated as justice in our scriptures, but it's this word mishpat. And it's this idea of a right ordering of things. And so you see this show up. We looked at this last week, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do mishpat, to do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So this is a summary of like what we're called to. And again, the idea of mishpat, it's what we're exploring in this particular series, is this idea not just of, well, somebody, you know, maybe they uh, did something wrong and they go before a judge and justice has to be enacted, although it includes that. But it's I, this idea, it's bigger, it goes further than that. It's about a restoration of how God intends things to be. And it's also about rights. It's not charity, which is optional. It's actually every single person, all right, made in the image of God, deserves, it is their God-given, entitled right to justice, to a right order of things. And so as the church, we get the great privilege and responsibility to come along and bring this mishpat. Now, we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it in our own strength, all right? Now, some of you have been around Crosspoint. just wanted to throw this in for a moment. I invite you to come back next week. But each year, we've done a mishpat project, um, and it's been exciting to see what the Lord has done as we've sought to bring justice um, into particular domains, the spheres of influence that the Lord has given to us. Um, and I believe what we have this year, sort of mishpat 3.0, has the potential to be um, really the most exciting, transformative thing that we've done in the life of our church. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic with that. I could be hyperbolic at times, but I don't think I am actually in this, this case. And so next week, I know I'm not going to go into it right now. You're like, well, what is it? Come back next week. I re, I'm so excited to share with you what, it, uh, what we're going to be about in this invitation that we have as a church. But this morning, what we're going to dive into is each week we've looked at various um, things just going on in the culture and asking the Lord, what might it look like for us to be a people that are bringing justice, that are bringing mishpat? And this morning, as we've done over the last couple of years, we want to circle back and we want to talk about God's vision for diversity, God's vision for racial reconciliation, justice and racial reconciliation. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you um, have a Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3, which is where we're going to be. Um, you can also go on your phone, go to cpwp.life. 
The second card as you swipe over says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen this morning, all right, because there's a lot of detail. There's some things you might be wanting to write down, like it's all there, but then there is space to actually take notes as well. But justice and racial reconciliation. So go to cpwp.life, message notes. You'll find this all there. You can review it afterwards. But let me just read you this quote. There's a helpful little book um, in this Gospel and Life series, um, and it's called The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation. It's edited by Russell Moore. And in it, there's particular essays by various authors. And towards the end of the book, these, these two authors, all right, and I'll quote them here in a moment, begin just kind of wrestling through, I think, what probably some of us feel here th- this morning, all right, particularly if you're part of the majority culture, all right, meaning that you're white. Um, there's some things that were like, hey, I don't know what to do with this. And I love the way that they sort of get at, I think, what is probably oftentimes on our mind and our heart. And so they say this, when we talk about racial reconciliation, it is not uncommon to hear someone reply, well, what in the world do I have to apologize for? I never owned slaves. I never operated a segregationist lunch counter. I never protested against desegregation. If I haven't done anything wrong, how can you say I need to be reconciled? And it says it is not an entirely stupid question. Presumably, apparently, it is somewhat of a stupid question, they're saying, but right, it's not an entirely stupid question, all right? Um, They say, but it betrays just how significant our challenge is. Embedded within a hyper-individualistic culture, we often lose sight of the ancient and biblical truth that we inhabit space and time and are deeply connected to one another, connected to history and tied to all kinds of virtues and evils. We thus fail to account for the fact that sin has toxic implications, and this is huge for us, not only for individuals, but for cultures, societal structures, and worldviews. Our own way of thinking, loving, hating, and feeling are shaped often in ways of which we are even unaware by this reality. And so as we come in and we wonder, okay, what does this have to do? Like, how are we supposed to be talking about this, thinking about about this? I don't presume to have all of the answers to this. Um, If it's not obvious right now, I'm a white guy up here on the stage, right? Um, Like, the reality is there's certain things in life that I've never lived or experienced as much as I might say to somebody, like, hey, I know how you feel. That would be a lie because I don't. But I do believe that there's this calling as the church to want to enter in and say, here, help me learn, help me understand what would it look like for the church to put on display what it looks like to really experience reconciliation. We're called, 2 Corinthians 5, to be ministers of reconciliation. All right, and that's gotta start within the church. We have an amazing opportunity, again, to showcase for a watching world, here's what it looks like with people from various backgrounds, various stories, various experiences, different races, economic stages, education level. I mean, there's all kinds of different things, right? And we have an opportunity as the church to say, hey, we don't do this perfectly, um, but we are striving by the grace of God to live out as this unified one body that the gospel has actually made us. Because that's our reality as Ephesians, uh, we'll look at it a little bit later, it speaks to as well. But Colossians 3 is where we're going to camp out this morning. And so if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, again, cbwp.life message notes or the paperback Bible's on the back table there. You can turn to page 1088. And I'm going to take this sort of in sections. And the way that this starts out is the Apostle Paul is encouraging a community. It's this new church, all right? He's writing to them and he's got some words to share with them about this new life. And so he's been talking to them about their identity, all right? He's going to emphasize that here at the very beginning of chapter 3. But the first couple chapters really have been about the gospel. And now it's like the implications. Like how are we to actually live? And what Paul wrote to them a couple thousand years ago has huge implications for you and I living in the time and place in which we live. In the communities we inhabit. 
So the first four verses of Colossians 3, it says this. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's an immediate call that the Apostle Paul says, listen, I need you, he says, to set your mind on the things that are above. I need you to focus on Christ. Now, the idea here, the language here, just so we are clear on this, all right, it's not a one-time, all right, you set your mind on it and then you can kind of move on to other things. The language here, the tense of this verb, it is an ongoing, continual thing because every single part of your life and my life is gonna try and distract us from this. And so Paul is saying, hey, I know humanity, I know my own heart, all right? And what he's writing back then is true for us here today. Even in this moment, I want you to try and fight for setting your mind on the things of Christ. Set your mind on the fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Set your mind on the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died the death that you deserve, that he rose again, that he ascended, he's ruling and reigning. One day he's gonna split the sky, he's gonna come back, he's gonna set everything right, there'll be no more racial strife, there'll be no more prejudice, there'll be none of that. Like everything is gonna be perfectly unified. And so Paul is telling us, like, set your mind there. And so let me just ask you, like, where are you setting your mind? In what ways are you trying to establish even rhythms in this new year to fight against the distraction that would pull you down, would pull me down to just focus on the things here on earth? Now, we're not anti-things here on earth, right? What did Jesus, like this whole series, on earth as it is in heaven? There's a big focus on this world and this place, and it matters. And maybe you've heard this before, that there's sometimes some that would offer up, you know, those people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Maybe you're familiar with the artist Johnny Cash. All right, we'll go a little Johnny Cash here this morning. I will not sing it, all right, but you can just picture him. Uh, he has this particular song that's literally entitled, uh, No Earthly Good. He says, come heed me, my brothers, come heed one and all. Don't brag about standing or you'll surely fall. You're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. If you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Now, on the one hand, there are people I think that this critique would be true of, that it's just like all you're trying to do is get somebody to like pray a prayer, get them saved, and you're just like, okay, then I can move on, and there's nothing to do with this life. You're just praying you get zapped up into heaven someday. Okay, if that's what somebody has in mind, then this song is well and true. But the Apostle Paul, I think, would critique this song. All right, he's not anti-Johnny Cash, but I think he would critique him on his theology here, okay? Just to be clear, so don't send me an email, all right? But in this song, what he's getting at, I think, is this sometimes popular phrase that, oh, we're so heavenly-minded. Here's the reality. I am not heavenly-minded enough. And my guess is you're not heavenly-minded enough, that we are too easily distracted. We're too easily forget who we are in Christ. We too easily forget that Jesus is ruling and reigning. We too easily just kind of get sucked into just the day-to-day grind and minutia and forget, oh, I'm part of this bigger story. Oh, God has work for me to do here that actually has like massive eternal implications. And so what we see here is Paul's inviting us like continually seek above. If we're gonna be a people that seek justice, mishpat, reconciliation, racial reconciliation, we looked at the sanctity of life last week, we're gonna look at evangelism, church planning next week, all of it flows out of vertically looking up and being like, okay, let's remember who Jesus is, let's remember who we are in Christ. And so that's what verses three to four get at. So we have to see these things in these opening verses, otherwise none of the rest of the stuff we're gonna talk about 
would actually have any sort of lasting um, impact because it's, we would be trying to do it in our own strength. And so continually, everything. If we feel overwhelmed by this series, oh my gosh, like what are we gonna do as a church? How are we gonna do that? That's, that's a good feeling because it drives us what? Vertically back to see, okay, Jesus has got this. I'm not the savior, Jesus is the savior. That little voice, all right, that's saying, you've gotta do this, you've gotta do more, you've gotta try and make everything right. Like you can tell your little savior complex, like go stand in the corner for a minute, you're in timeout, right? Like there's a real savior and it's Jesus, it's not you and it's not me. And yet, he's like, but I wanna use you. And so three to four tells us about, again, who we are in Christ, our identity, and how that fuels sanctification. It's just this fancy way of saying like, our growth, our maturity as Christians, Justification is like you're right standing with God because of Jesus. And so that fuels how we live it out. I would say it fuels our sanctification. It fuels our reconciliation. It fuels mission. So three to four, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Meaning like the old part of you, and Paul's gonna talk about that, it's actually died. And so there's been this new life that you've been given. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you realize your life is hidden with Christ? If you're a follower of Jesus, like he's got you, he's got a plan for you, he wants to use you. And so anything that we talk through, any of these things about justice, about seeking, like entering into hard spaces and difficult conversations, remember, we have to remember that our identity is rooted and grounded, we're hidden with Christ. You've got a new life, a new identity. And so what Paul begins to do, look at with me at 5 to 11 then, is there's these problems, I think, that continue to arise, continue to pop off because we are prone to forget the heavenly and we just focus on the earthly and we get consumed and we forget who we belong to, that we're sons and daughters of the king. So let me read 5 to 11, and Paul uses this language where he's gonna talk, it's pretty violent even, all right? We need to feel this. He's gonna say, like, there's certain things you need to put away, you need to put to death, all right, this isn't a, well, just sort of ignore it, let it be. It's like, no, 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 like you need to murder that thing, all right? I mean, it's a very, very aggressive passage here. So verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he begins to list out a bunch of things. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That God has to punish those things, he's saying. Verse seven, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then he begins to list out more things. Put away anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verse 11, so here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so if we were making our way through the entire book of Colossians, which we did a number of years ago, like we would spend some time, I would wanna spend some time on that whole list. Put this to death and put these things away or put off the old self. But what I wanna zero in on this morning, and those are all valid things, and I would say even those things that are in that, that list, those lists of vices, like if we could put those to death, they don't just have individual implications. That's the lie of the enemy that's like, well, if you lie or if you, you know, have got malice or, or kind of anger issues or whatever, that just affects you. Well, no, no, those things, they all spill out and they all affect other people kind of horizontally. They have implications. 
And so even for us to enter into this idea of justice, racial reconciliation, God's vision for his people, the diversity in which he's created, like if we would put some of these things together, I think we would actually have less issues. And then Paul says in verse 11, but here's what we want to focus on. He's reminding this group of people. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew. So he's writing to this diverse church. He's writing to people that have become followers of Jesus. And he's like, hey, I know you've got your ethnic backgrounds. I know you've got particular stories. But in Christ, now he's not saying these identities go away, all right? God's vision, all right, just so you know, in the new heavens and new earth, is we're not all going to look the same and have the same skin color, all right? Every tribe, tongue, nation, like it's going to be incredibly diverse, And if you're like, I don't like diversity, then heaven's going to really bum you out, right? The the reality is God has created us distinct, different backgrounds, personalities, all all of that. It's all part of his creation. Even the fact that it says we're being remade in God's image, God exists in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, these distinct natures, all of that. They don't lose their, Jesus doesn't lose his sonness or the Spirit lose its spiritness or the Father, his fatherness. Like they're distinct and yet there's a oneness that they have. And so he's saying as the church though, big picture, it's not divided up on these things. Like Greek and Jew are circumcised and uncircumcised. That was a huge issue particularly amongst the, the Jewish people. And he says, and there's not, just, there's not barbarians and then Scythians. Apparently it was like a whole other particular type. The fact that these get named, barbarian would be the general category. And Scythian were these folks up near the Black Sea. And they were like, oh, even the barbarians were like, they are uneducated, uncivilized. They're just the worst. We can't stand those people. So apparently you didn't want to be known as a Scythian, all right, um, in that time and place. And it says there's some that are in the category like, they don't have their own rights. They're slaves. Some are free, and yet they're in the same church, and they're gathering together. And so it's this incredible mix of people. And Paul says this, but Christ is all, and Christ is in all, meaning every single person, regardless of their background, all right, is invited to experience the grace of God, and we can't lose sight of that. Now, I think we know this intellectually. I don't think I'm saying anything that's like, Oh, wow, like, you know, um, that's, a, that's a new revelation. But I want us to consider this for a moment. It's like, why would Paul actually have to write this? Why was this such a big deal of, of the big kind of laundry list of things that he's writing out? Like, put this to death, put this off, don't do this. At the end of that section, why does he begin to speak about these distinctives? Again, it's not because he thinks those things don't matter. It's not because he is telling everybody that, you know, in order to be a real follower of Jesus, you've got to be completely Jewish. That's not what he would talk about. In fact, he would eventually rebuke the apostle Peter for kind of going down that path. It's like, you're not living in step with the gospel? Like, what are you doing, man? Like, you're making this thing ultimate? Paul is writing this because there's something that happens in the human heart where we want to think and categorize it as, well, those people over there. And what happened a couple thousand years ago happened thousands of years before that and is still happening today. That there's something in the human heart that we want to get puffed up. We want to feel a little bit better. We might not verbalize that, but we have to be honest. There's a self-righteousness that creeps in. And we find our identity, not in the finished work of Jesus, but about who we are in the world. And what we can begin to do is put people into this category of like, well, they're other, or those people. 
as a church staff, one of the things we do is we regularly like, you know, pick a particular book of the Bible or a book that we're going to study together. And so we've kind of done a combo on that. We've been reading a book called The Prodigal Prophet, um, which is a study of the book of Jonah. Now, if you know the story of Jonah, um, you know that Jonah is told by God, I need you to go to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah, who is this God-fearing Jewish man, is like, those people? That's literally his response, right? He's like, God, I got a better idea. I'm going to flee. I will not go there. And so he hops on a ship and he goes the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, to be honest and to be fair, like the Ninevites, like they were not good, God-honoring, moral people, all right? Um, They're like horrific in many ways. And yet, God says, no, I need you to go and preach this message. But Jonah gets on this uh, in a ship, and he just says, nope, I'm going to go do my own thing. And as you know the story, perhaps you're familiar with this, um, there's this great storm that comes up, and they can't figure out what to do, and you got these pagan sailors, and they're crying out to their gods, and nothing seems to be happening, and eventually they awake Jonah, and they have this conversation with him, and like, well, who are you? Like, maybe you can help us here. And in Jonah chapter 1, 7 to 9, look at the language here. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. All right? They sense that something is up. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What are they asking? They're asking identity questions here. It's what we do like at a party when we meet somebody. They're like, oh, well, who are you? Where are you from? What, what, what do you do for work? Like they're trying to figure something out. And of what people are you? Now look at Jonah's response. He gets this list of questions, and what does he lead with? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I don't believe this is just a, well, he just was randomly sort of answering their questions. In the book, Tim Keller talks about the fact that there's something deeper going on here. That Jonah, when we know that he's running, that he doesn't want to go to those people. And then what he leads with is his identity is, I'm a Hebrew. It's not first and foremost about being a follower of the one true God. He's like, I am a Hebrew. This is my ethnicity. This is my nationality. His nationalism is coming up. And you see it throughout the book of Jonah. Now, I wish I could say, ah, that that, that guy's silly. I would have gone and done the right thing. You know, I would have cared about all people because all are made in the image and likeness of God. But would we really have done that? There's this recognition here that, ah, we do tend to get goofed up. And that's why Paul has to write to this church and say, hey, remember, you're all in Christ, the grace of God. None of us deserve the, the, uh, God's mercy. It's all by God's grace. The playing field's been, been level, and you need to embrace your brother and sister that is regardless of their particular background. So in this book, The Prodigal Prophet, hear these words. He says, what Jonah is doing is what some have called othering. To, ga- to categorize people as the other then is to focus on the ways they are different from oneself, to focus on their strangeness and to reduce them to these characteristics until they are dehumanized. We then can say, you know how they are, so we don't then need to engage with them. This makes it possible to exclu- exclude them in various ways by simply ignoring them or by forcing them to conform to our beliefs and practices or by requiring them to live in certain poor neighborhoods or by just driving them out this tendency in the human heart to to categorize people as other and then when they're no longer seen as image bearers when they're dehumanized horrific things begin to happen 
And I was at a gathering not too long ago with a particular, uh, some other Acts 29 pastors, the church planning network that we're part of. And I thought this was a very insightful statement. One of the guys who's talking about our history here in Orlando even, I think that we need to, to look at. And he says, the phrase that he used was trauma has a long tail. Meaning things can happen and then it takes a long while and there's still repercussions and there's implications. So what I want to do for a few moments, all right, I think this is an approach that we can take as we think through, all right, anytime, regardless of what your race is, background, like you're seeking to understand somebody that is different from you, if we could simply even think, okay, big picture, we're called to love, and the way that we're going to engage in loving people is to actually stop and to, to actually look, to listen, learn. You don't have to use all L words, all right, but if it helps you, go with it, okay? But the idea here is, hey, could we just pause for a moment and examine and say, okay, what are some of the things that, that have played out? Like nothing happens just in isolation. And there are things, as I read that opening quote, sometimes we look back and like, well, that, I, didn't do, I don't think I was responsible for that. But there is a calling for us as Christians to actively be agents of reconciliation. Whenever we would see and experience somebody that maybe their story is different and there's some pain that they're carrying, like, can we figure out like what's going on there? And I'll be honest, like, you, I know I will, I will stumble and stagger through this and I'll say things that are wrong and I'll probably have to come back numerous times and apologize and be like, oh, I didn't, sorry, I, I, gosh, I said it that way, I didn't mean that. And the, it can produce some tension. But I think it's space we have to enter into. And so in order to love, what would it look like then to sort of look, listen, learn, meaning like look at your own story, all right? And then begin to look and see the community God has placed you in. And so for a few moments here, here's some things that I've been learning recently, all right? Maybe this is stuff that you are like well aware of, but let's just talk a couple things even in our community. And if we think about trauma, and I'm gonna talk about some things that are very traumatic, it has this long tail, and I think there's implications still to this day. That in our city of Orlando, the city beautiful, there are many beautiful things, but there are some things that we would rather not focus on. There's been an othering aspect to the city of Orlando. Now, that's not unique. You could go pick another city, all right? We're not just trying to pick on Orlando, okay? But this is where God has called us. We're in this community. So, yeah, we could go talk about, you know, other places. Well, they did this in Atlanta, or they did this in Jackson, Mississippi, or they did this in Seattle or Chicago. Okay, great. Like, if you happen to live there, talk about those things. But we're here, and we're in Orlando, so we'll talk about Orlando. And so Orlando and othering. One of the things I remember, I'd heard of this, but I didn't have any real idea about just the significance, like what the, the trauma that had occurred. But are you familiar with that, you know, about 15 miles from here, the Ocoee massacre that occurred in 1920. It was November 2nd, 1920. Um, it was an election day, presidential election day. And prior to that, um, in elections previous, um, this town of Ocoee was almost 50-50 black and white. And the black folks there were not allowed, they were prohibited from voting. So many measures put in place. But leading up to this election, they'd been registering. In fact, there were two guys, Mose Norman um, and uh, July Perry, were two influential African-Americans in that community who were going around and they were helping to register their fellow African-Americans to actually engage in the vote, all right? Some of them had to pay a poll tax. If they couldn't afford it, they were writing it. They were paying for that themselves, incurring that, that cost. And so on the day of this election, November 2nd, 1920, a large number of the African-American community in Ocoee goes to the ballots and they are not allowed to vote. In fact, the day prior, there were KKK rallies in Jacksonville and Orlando and other parts to try and scare off the black voters from going out on that particular day. And so that was happening in Orlando. That was happening in Ocoee. 
And so they show up to vote. People are turned away. They say, oh, well, you need to actually see the notary to do that. Like, okay, well, let's see the notary to confirm our registration. And he was conveniently on a fishing trip. That is what he would do. And it was not by accident. It was an intentional move to like, oh, I'm sorry, he's not here. Therefore, we can't help you. And so Mose Norman, one of the guys that was leading this movement, says, okay, what do I do now? And so he calls a friend of his. He calls a, a judge um, that, he's, that has been supportive of him. And the guy says, hey, you need to go back and try and vote. Write down the names of the people that are being rejected. Write down the names of the people working the, the polls that are, that are doing this. Now, so he goes back to do it. Now, you can imagine there's tension Somewhere along the line, they don't know if it was a gun that Norman brought with him or somebody brought him, but eventually he's run off uh, from the polling places by, with a shotgun, all right? Like they're just chasing him out. And he takes off. And after this, you know, you can go read these accounts. Seriously, just Google a Koei massacre, all right? Not right now, but later, okay? And you will read these different accounts of how this man fled and they thought he was going to his home. And a mob of about 100 white men began to form. And they were chasing him down. And then word was given, oh, he went to his good friend July Perry's house. And so they surround Perry's house. And they began firing shots. And people are trying to break in the front door and through the back door. And shots are fired. And two white men end up getting killed. And the riot is just starting to happen. And there's this tension that's in the air. And once those shots were, were fired... They took a break for a couple of hours to go and call reinforcements from surrounding communities to get a bigger group of people. And in the meantime, Moses Norman was able to flee. In July, Perry, him and his wife, took off out into the cane field trying to get away, but he, was, he had been shot and he was injured. And a couple hours later, they actually find him, they arrest him, they take him to a hospital, okay, where he is treated for his wounds and then is going to be brought to a jail. And in the process, they don't take him to the jail. They take him out and they lynch him. And then the white mob that is formed goes back into Okoe, into the northern part where the black community was. There's a northern and a southern black community in that particular town. And they begin to burn down every house and building. They kill upwards of 50 to 60 African Americans in that community. The entire aspect of that part of the community is raised. There are men, it's not just men, men, women, and children that are massacred. A couple months later, they go to the southern part of uh, the town where there's another African-American community, and they say, that same thing's going to happen to you unless you get out. And so by 1921, what had been an evenly split community, all right, we're talking, this is not too far from where we are right now. By 1921, not a single black person lived in Ocoee. And from 1921 until 1981, there was not a single black person that lived in Ocoee. So you just think, okay, this is just part of our city. Our, and this is not necessarily even this altogether, sadly, unique thing that would happen. The number of people that were killed was unique. It's literally the largest, like, kind of political, uh, you know, uh, bloodbath that's ever occurred on our soil. And so that's part of our story. What do we do with that? What about this? There's a community. Let's just spend a couple minutes here. There's a number of things that we could talk about. In 1881, different communities were formed. There's a community. Um, this is in around, like if you were familiar with the Amoy Center is, the Paramore community, all right? Holden Heights, Paramore. 1881, it was formed um, uh, by James Paramore, who had been a mayor in Orlando, a white man who formed this community so that the folks there, the black folks, could serve the white Orlando 
citizens, all right? And so you had this community. Now, it's segregated for a long while, obviously, um, but was actually, most people would say, relatively flourishing. Segregation, not good, but in terms of just economically, businesses, things that were going relatively well. Except one of the things that you begin to happen is it begins to get boxed in, all right? I mean, you literally have in this community, it's still there to this day, that's Division Street. That's not just a, oh, what name should we give? This, this is the dividing line. This is, if you were an African-American and you were east of that on after sundown, that you risk being killed. You risk being lynched. Like, that's in our community, that that street is still named that, right? I mean, this is just what was happening. But yet you have this community that's, there's businesses, it's thriving, um, despite the segregation. And then in 19, is late 1950s, 1957, uh, U.S. government, we're doing work on like a national interstate system and Interstate 4 is getting ready to be put in, right? Now, have you ever noticed those? You drive through Orlando, like we have our skyline, it's all just on one side of the city. Well, what you had there is this road was being put through and different communities were coming out to say, hey, don't, don't go through this part, it's gonna ruin things. So for instance, if you've ever driven I-4, you notice it veers a little bit as it gets closer to Winter Park, well, why? The original plans were to go through the center of Winter Park and Winter Park residents were able to rally and kind of come together and say, no, we don't want that. We need to push it to the out, outskirts of town and the furthest kind of the end of Fairbanks there, all right? They had the clout to be able to do that. But Paramore, that community didn't have that sort of clout. They were ignored. They tried to get somebody to listen. 551 pieces of property were destroyed in that community in order for the interstate to go through. And what had one time been kind of east and west where people could engage in business and go back and forth suddenly was cut off. Businesses began to decline. Redlining occurs, mortgages, things like that begin to happen. The community begins to spiral into poverty. People will be like, well, why didn't they just move? Well, think about it for a moment. Are you going to move in the late 50s a little further west where there hasn't been a black person in Ocoee for many, many years? To the south was undeveloped. To the east, now you have this barrier. To the north, you're like, okay, well, I could go north of 50. I could move into the College Park area. Except until 1970, it was on, it was in the deeds that no non-white person could actually own property. And so what do you do? You find, it's like this community that is just trapped. And so you, the skyline, all of the, these things. Now, I know there's plans and there's things, again, that trying to develop that, trying to restore some of the, these things. This isn't for us to walk around and leave today being like, oh my gosh, like I just feel guilty for, you know, if you're white here this morning, it's not to induce like white guilt or any of that. It's just a call for us to say, hey, what would it look like to look around our community, to actually listen and learn about some of the things that have implications that have shaped us? Like, can we acknowledge that that actually has occurred? The moment the public schools were, uh, it was passed to desegregate four hours after that decision, the charter was formed for Lake Highland Prep uh, to be formed. Is that a coincidence? No. Now, listen, if you went there, if you teach, I have good friends that work there. I'm not anti that school. I'm just telling you, like, there's a history to our city where it's like, oh, we don't want our kids being around these non-whites, so we'll go and form something. Like, that stuff happened. 
And because of it, there's still today, there are implications. And so as a church, it's like, how do we figure out, like, what would it actually look like to love and to care? And I think the Apostle Paul will help us here. Now, again, this is not to say, okay, in the next seven or eight minutes, all right, I'm going to give you all the answers. We're going to solve this. I'm just asking us to consider what would it look like to seek renewal in our community? As I learn these things, my heart is broken. I'll be honest, like, there's communities there's things that have happened in our city that until I even knew, I didn't even know to pray for these things. So maybe that's it for us. Maybe it's just starting out and saying, Lord, would you be at work? There has been systemic things that have happened that probably have implications that I am blind to, but Lord, would you help us step in? And I believe as a church, God has given us opportunities to do that. I think we are stepping into some of those spaces. We're also not called as a church to solve all of that, all right? But I think there's a call as a church to say, okay, What does it look like to empathize? What does it look like to show compassion? What does it look like to just be honest with, okay, well, this is is not what God intended. What does mishpat look like? Here's what I believe. I believe God is going to stir something in some of you. I don't know what it's going to be, but God is going to raise you up to do things in your own unique way. I've seen that over the last couple years. Even as we've preached on these topics, there's been things that I've like, I never would have thought of that. But the Spirit of God is working. The Spirit of God is present in us as a church, in you as a follower of Jesus. And there are things that he's going to show you and you're going to step out in faithfulness. And we as a church can hopefully come alongside and celebrate and encourage. Like I believe that those things are going to continue to happen. And it wouldn't happen unless we were talking about it, as uncomfortable as it is. So right after verse 11, look what the Apostle Paul does. All right, He says, all right. After putting all those things off, recognizing that this exists in the human heart, he says this, here's what I want you to do. He uses this clothing language. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Can we just stop there for one moment? Again, it's that reminder vertically of our identity. You and I being chosen by God should never, ever, ever lead us to a place of self-righteousness, right? Sometimes even in our particular theological stream where we believe that God elects people, things like that, you're like, oh, does that lead to arrogance? It never should because what, Go read 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what was lowly, ridiculous, wicked, foolish to showcase his strength. So if you ever feel like, oh, I'm chosen, and you get all puffed up about that, God chose the worst in order to showcase his strength and his awesomeness, all right? So there's nothing for us to have any sort of arrogance or pride about. But there is a confidence, like you are chosen, you're holy, you've been set apart, you're beloved, you don't have anything to prove anymore, all right? You've got this new identity, and so he says this, Put on then compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So for a few moments here, just want to direct your attention to this. Think of this clothing language. What if we were a community that was seen, were clothed with compassion? The King James, I don't oftentimes like the King James Version, but the translation's rather interesting of compassion or compassionate hearts. It literally is from the, like, uh, the bowels of mercy, right? It's like, okay, yeah, it's kind of getting at this. Like, are you really engaged? Kindness. It's the idea there of, a, of an aged wine that is mellowed and all the harshness has gone out of it. 
What if we were seen as that as a church? It's like, oh, there's just a, there's a warmth, there's a kindness about us, that there's a humility, a self-forgetfulness, that we're not in it for our name, that there's a meekness, which we tend, unfortunately, to associate with, like, well, that person gets run over. No, no, no. A meekness is a strength that's under control where, again, you don't feel the need to always fight back. You don't need, feel the need to defend. You don't feel like, oh, I've got to say something in, in this, this moment. You're just like, no, it's strength that is under control. And then there's a patience. There's a long suffering. We put that on. Do you know who put that on perfectly, who embodied that perfectly? None other, right, than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly compassionate, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, this long suffering that would take him all the way to the cross. And then we get this word, bearing with one another. If, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's gospel motivated. If we're gonna be a church that's engaging in racial reconciliation and just reconciliation of any type, it's gonna take a lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness on all sides. So we listen, we learn, we're hearing one another, we're trying to be empathetic, all of that, and yet we're gonna make mistakes and there's gonna be things to apologize for, but it's be quick to forgive. You have been forgiven, I've been forgiven, and so therefore I in turn now can give and grant forgiveness to other people. Sam Storms in his book on, the, on his work on Colossians says this, so just be clear on this. There's some myths of forgiveness. And he says this, for one, forgiving is not forgetting. All right, sometimes we think that that goes with it. No, that doesn't mean you automatically forget these things. So things have implications sometimes. Forgiving does not eliminate the pain of the offense. These would be myths. Forgiving does not mean you cease longing for justice. Forgiveness is not like, okay, everything is fine and we don't work towards greater mishpat. Forgiving does not mean you make it easy for the offenders to hurt you again. Forgiveness is rarely a one-time sort of climactic event. Okay, cool, forgiveness, now we can move on. But it's a calling, we've been forgiven, we've been extended grace, how can we do that for one another? And above all these, the language here is like, we've got these characteristics, you've got this clothing, and the belt that ties it all together says we put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's our calling as the church. You have been loved. Jesus laid down his life for us as his friends, and what should we do then? We do that in turn for other people that it is the love of God that compels us. And he tells us then, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in what? In one body and be thankful. How can we live as a people that love well, that engage in compassion? We have to continually look to our savior, realize we've been extended these things that we can in turn extend to other people. We can enter in, we can weep over Orlando the way that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. We can see the brokenness and we can say, Lord, what would you have me do? How can I step in? How can I be an agent of reconciliation? Lord, you're not calling me to, to step into every space, but I believe you're calling me to move out of a place of comfort into a place of, active seeking reconciliation. And may we be motivated by this. We'll close with Ephesians 2, 13 to 16. This reality, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's telling everybody like, you used to be far off, but now you've been brought near. Why? Not because you're awesome and you earned it or you went and did all the right things and tallied things up. No, no, no. Solely by the grace of God, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man 
He's created an entire new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. May we be a people that remember the oneness, the new humanity that God has made possible. How? Through the cross, where Jesus dealt with our rebellion. He dealt with our pride and our arrogance. He dealt with the wrath of God that should have been poured out on you and in me, for me thinking that I'm awesome, trying to find my identity in other things. What should have been poured out on me was instead poured out on Jesus. The hostility that existed vertically between us and God is now gone. Therefore, now the hostility that still exists between us and other people can go away because we start to realize, hey, I'm no better than anybody else. I've been saved by the grace of God. The grace of God in the most beautiful, redemptive way has wrecked me, has shown me I don't have anything to contribute. God, it's all by your grace. And when we are understand that, suddenly the arrogance, the pride, the self-righteousness, the prejudice, it all begins to fade away. But it's put on and it's set your minds on continually remembering who we are in Christ. So I wanna give us a moment, just some silent reflection, trusting that the spirit is gonna stir in you. We'll have some instruction here in a moment on how we're gonna continue in our service as Pastor Eric comes up in a moment. But let me just... Uh, lead us in a just short time of prayer and then quiet your hearts and take a few moments. Once we start communion, if you've got kids, go get them then, but please stay here until we get an opportunity just to kind of spend some time reflecting. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, how it challenges us. God, I thank you that you've called us this time and this place and this community with all its beauty and all its brokenness. And I pray as a church, God, you would help us to know where are we called to step in? What do you want from us? What do you want us to do? Not to earn anything, but you want to use us to bring a right ordering, to bring Mishpat. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray that Orlando would look more and more like the heavenly realms, that the church would be able to lead out and put on display your glory and what it looks like when a group of people come together with all the beautiful diversity that exists in this city. God, we are thankful for that. And I pray that bit by bit, true reconciliation, healing would continue to happen. And I pray, God, that it would be your church, not just Crosspoint, but your church, the churches in this community, God, that we might be able to link arms and do that together. So guide us, we pray. We need tons of help. Thank you for your constant grace, your forgiveness. And God, I hear the prayers of your people now. God, I pray that you'd be glorified. And I pray that we would experience just a great joy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.